in 17. I am a vampire, and you are mortal. Hello and welcome to This Podcast Sucks. The show where we take a bite out of the vampire genre. We'll be following all manner of fanged fiends through the past 127 years of film and television. From Nosferatu to Twilight, I'm your host, Tara. And I'm your host, Elliot. And today, we will be talking about Frank R. Strayer's 1935 film, Condemned to Live, which I am excited to get into because I think, like you were saying, Elliot, this is the first film we've disagreed on. Yes. <laughs> so I I did not care for it really at all. And I know you said you liked it. Yeah. I you, Last night you texted me and you were like, this is a terrible movie. <laughs> and, <laughs> I think um, I said I was like, uh, I was just like, wow, this movie is bad. And uh, yeah, I thought it was the worst one we've watched so far, but... You don't think that? <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I don't think this was the best one we've watched so far, but I found myself engaged by this one in a way that I definitely was not for, um, well, our last one was Mark of the Vampire and that one kind of, I was engaged because it, it was, there was like a level of absurdism to it, but like the yes. vampire bat, I really struggled to pay attention to. Um, uh-huh. And then, you I, know, even yeah. Lugosi's Dracula had some some issues in terms of like keeping audience engagement up and just like the pacing but there were things that i liked about this film and things that i thought were innovative innovative (laughs) that's so interesting because i think the this was my vampire bat i think i i like maybe it's because with the vampire bat there was like that um twist with the mad scientist trope or something i don't know but um yeah, no, this one, I was I was struggling with this one a bit to just um, stay focused. But that's all stuff we can get into and discuss. Um, but first, I should talk about the film's production and some background. Granted, there's not a lot I could find. <laughs> but the film was directed by Frank R. Strayer, who from my... Um, internet research i guess or what little internet research i did um he's he's a considered a prevalent horror director within hollywood i guess he made a lot of horror films around this time um uh-huh. the film was written by um a woman karen de wolf which i think we were saying she might be the first solo female writer we've had for our films woohoo um Yay. yes we have had scarce women kind of at the um at the production level at like the kind of higher production level Mm -hmm. yes so the music was by abe meyer produced by mary m cohen and um apparently it was produced independently of the hollywood studio system which is interesting Mm -hmm. um so i would have to imagine that maury cohen here had had a lot of money (laughs) could bankroll this <laughs> kind of like, like yes. kind of like vampire where the producer for that was also like i'll produce it if you cast me as the lead yes that guy the dandy kind of yeah kind of the, almost like wasn't he friends with oscar wilde or didn't he I, have an affair with oscar wilde's wife oh, or, he had oh some really interesting connection he, to oscar wilde 
he had a very interesting life and was most well known for, I think, starting famous fashion magazines. Like I want to say Vogue uh-huh. was one. Um, I think, he and was for not, kind yeah. of befriending or starting the careers of some famous fashion designers. Mm-hmm. Um, that was that was his true domain. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah. Um, and let's see, release. Unfortunately, could not find much about it. Um, but in terms of fun facts, because Frank Arstrayer also uh, directed The Vampire Bat, which he was able to use sets from The Bride of Frankenstein for, um, this film also did the same, It, um, but with The Vampire Bat. So Frank Arstrayer used the same music and sets as The Vampire Bat, which, you know, the sets were really... Um, Bride of Frankenstein. So we're getting into inception levels of set <laughs> usage, I would say. Um, it also reused some costumes from Bride of Frankenstein. Um, and the film was first telecast um, on July 8th, 1941, on New York City's newly launched first full time television station, what? WNBD Channel One, which had been previously been identified as W2XBS during its preceding experimental years. So post-World War II, televiewers got their first look at it in New York City Wednesday the 10th, November 1948 on WATV Channel 13. 1948? Yes. Fascinating. Yeah. So 13 years after the film was made? Well, it says it was first telecast on 1941. Um, Okay. In New York City's newly launched first full-time television station. Oh, this was during, the first time a um, film, okay, was... Yeah, okay. during its preceding experimental years. Post-World War II televi- televiewers, this says, got their first look at it in New York City um, in November 1948 on WATV Channel 13. So, it's kind of interesting. Um, yeah. And then in terms of, yeah... In terms of legacy, it's also kind of considered an outlier and sort of progressive for its time for being an early vampire film that depicts it in a sympathetic way, Mm -hmm. which I think is interesting and all stuff we can get into. Um, So should we start by discussing the film? Yes, for sure. Um, yeah, I think I agree that that's like the big innovation that I noticed um, in the film. And it's also cool that this is our first connection to television. Yeah, no, that that is interesting. And I I wonder what it was about this film that was picked for that. But yeah, that's, that's actually that's a great question. Um, but yeah, let's let's get into the story. <laughs> so the film opens. um with a trio of explorers in Africa who are hiding in a cave, and one of the explorers is a pregnant woman who apparently has been bitten by a vampire bat. And during the scene, I think I was very confused with what was going on. Yeah. Um, I So I was just, I think in my notes I say, okay, we're in a cave. What are those drums? This woman mm-hmm. is clearly dying of something. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we get our, our 1930s white colonialist, don't worry, darling, the natives won't attack us here. No oh boy. Um, 
Yeah, and she's scared of the drums. She's or she's kind of she says like always with the drums, like complaining about them. Um, <laughs> and I did not realize yeah. that this scene was set in Africa. I thought that this was. I didn't either. Yeah, I thought this was the same cave that comes up later in the movie. So well, I was like, you're very confused. Yeah. yeah, it probably was the same set. <laughs> I mean, yeah. for the cave. But it's like you were saying, we're still in this kind of early stage of filmmaking where we just don't have a lot of um, things like establishing shots or contextualization of where things take place. We kind of just jump right into the plot. Mm -hmm. And that can make it very confusing, as we were saying. But, you know, the two characters, the two men in the scene uh kind of establish what's going on. You know, this woman is pregnant and dying. She has been bitten by a vampire bat which you know i'm just gonna say it i think frank arstrayer is really into the concept of bats and vampirism <laughs> he does seem he does seem particularly uh, like his his two films have had a strong bat presence um yeah, bats they, are in the room with us <laughs> there's so many flappy bats you know you yeah. just you see the flappy bat come down on her and yeah. It, it it's interesting how I think now we really bats are pretty not pretty much not a thing when it comes to our vamp like you don't need a bat mm -hmm. in our vampire yes. media <laughs> unless it's what we do in the shadows where it's played for laughs and they're like wow yeah. bat fight um yeah or Renfield so, has some bat moments that's true but I think that's interesting because Renfield is about you know his relationship with Dracula who's this very long-standing iconic figure I feel like the that iconography is more closely attached to like an older idea of yeah, vampires or vampires definitely which is, which is neat um so the film cuts forward in time to a small european village a village that looks very familiar have we seen it in some films maybe uh, <laughs> where um lo and behold a series of mysterious murders are taking place and um, the villagers start to assemble in mob form with torches at the house of Professor Kristen after every murder. Um, so the film then cuts forward in time to a small European village, a village that looks very familiar, I would say, where a series of <laughs> yes. mysterious murders are taking place. Um, so in these scenes, we see the villagers begin to assemble in mob form. They've got their torches. Uh, consistently at the house of Professor Kristen, played by Ralph Morgan, after every murder. So while you were watching this, Elliot, were you becoming strongly reminded of the vampire bat? Could we see the director's stamp? That's uh, that's interesting because I hadn't I hadn't really thought of it that way. Um, but mm. when you, pointing it out, I guess there is that similarity. I did have in my notes several times that I was like, why is everyone so obsessed with Professor Christon? Like, what what is so special about this guy? Like, how, like, everyone is, like, in love with him. Everyone is, like, ride yes. or die for this dude. And they call him Professor, but he doesn't seem to do any teaching or it seems like they just call him that because he's really smart and knows about a lot of different things. Yeah, I think, well, they kept calling him Professor, but I'm just based on what he was doing in the film. I just, I was just thinking of him as a doctor because he's like examining dead bodies and things like that. But, you know, 
why not just call him doctor? Maybe he's not. Maybe he's just the smartest guy. And they're like, what's going on? There um, is a character that they call doctor. That Like, there is another character that's a doctor. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that comes yeah. in later. So it's a little, I don't know, professor, doctor, same thing then. Maybe I should. <laughs> um, but, yeah, because we get, I think I have in my notes, this film feels aesthetically similar to the vampire bat yeah i said this uh film is starting to feel very aesthetically similar to the vampire bat like with the scene where um they're examining the body and it's like in these films there's always a crowd around yeah. a body that has been drained of blood you know and it's like can we just what is everyone them? yeah what is everyone doing there because um. it's like well we can't have our mob of villagers if they're just kept in the dark about what's going on which is what would happen if you Uh did a private autopsy you know like in real life (laughs) and it doesn't really even seem like an autopsy it's like they get the corpse on the table and then they look at the neck and they're like well that's (laughs) all the information we need (laughs) i mean i i'm glad that you know basic logic is being used here because you see two holes in a dead person's neck you can reasonably assume they have lost blood in some capacity in other movies they're like what are you talking about when they say it's like a vampire they're like well they've been drained of blood i'm like you know the neck holes have to mean something so (laughs) Yeah, but it is interesting, the idea that, like, you wouldn't do any further investigating at all. Of, like, well, do they have bruises or, like, are there other yeah. injuries to the body? Yeah. Like, they're just like, well, case closed. <laughs> yeah, case closed. Um, so in the movie, the uh, villagers suspect that a giant bat is to blame for the murders. Um the professor, Kristen, gives the villagers advice on staying safe and assures them that a scientific explanation exists. So, yeah, we see that scene with him on his balcony just being like, stay inside, you know, have a bunch of light. That is, you know, you're safe that way. Um, We also get a bit of his home life um, Uh where... He, we find out that he is engaged to um, his fiance Marguerite, uh, played by Maxine Doyle, and that she, I think. What do I have in my notes? Um, hold on. <laughs> I think I wrote the first time we see her. I say, okay, based on Little Bo Peep's dress, what time period are we in? <laughs> yes, she. Her introduction is interesting because she looks very childish. Like she kind of. Skips into she's like skipping up to the building and she kind of skips in and she has this basket with this stuff yeah. in it like it's very um yeah it's like kind you of would infa- not infantilized think, yeah absolutely and she continues to be dressed in a way that can be kind of interpreted pretty childishly they also all the like her fiance calls her child all the time <sighs> They all do. All the men call her child. Yeah, everyone calls her child. Um, Yes. No, I I think that's a good point. I think the costumers were trying to make her look younger because I could be wrong, but this is an actress clearly in her 20s. Um, But uh, I I think her character is supposed to be like a teenager. So when they're talking about her engagement, I just wrote, um, what is the age difference here? at least 20 yeah, so, years just based on how he looks, right? 
Yeah, yeah. And um, so she is kind of framed as this beautiful, kind, innocent, you know, mm-hmm. you know, young girl, young woman um, that everyone just adores and loves because of those mm-hmm. traits. Um, she, it becomes apparent, is a little... Um, hesitant about marrying the professor mm-hmm. because he in this village is so revered as you were saying uh-huh. he's so wonderful so enlightened everyone just you know is his number one fan and she's always saying things like i i'm gonna be a good wife and i will be worthy of him and you know very i worship him <laughs> uh, you know or something like worrying that. things worrying things that would make us go hmm uh but yes, so we see that relationship and we also um, get an introduction to the character of, um, I believe it's Zan. Yes. Also, yes. I just found a, Marguerite says, could I ever deserve the professor after like talking about how great he is, which is very like, uh, it's, yeah, it's kind of. Yeah, because you're right that she expresses some hesitance, but I just because I remembered her saying something kind of very odd during that scene or um, so I found that a little weird. But then we um, well, I guess. And another thing about that scene before we talk about Zan that I think in terms of why some of the reasons that I think this film is a bit better than some of the other ones I've watched is that this felt like there was a bit of connective tissue here where like we learn a bit about Marguerite and you know his mm-hmm. his i think it's his cook um is talking about the professor and she talks a bit about like all of the different things that he does for the townspeople and you know that he stays up all hours of the night reading and writing mm-hmm. and helping people and that he's so yeah. selfless so that felt like we were getting a bit of some backstory and a bit of kind of development of who these mm-hmm. people are um which i appreciated right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree. There there was plenty of context, I guess, given to why, or, you know, why everyone loves the professor so much um, and everything he does. Um, and in the scene where he's talking with Marguerite, we're introduced to uh, Zahn, played by Misha Auer. I'm, maybe that's how I'm... I, he's a Russian-born American actor, so I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, but yeah, here again, just seeing the parallels with the vampire bat, um, because his character function, as we'll see later on in the film, is very similar to Dwight Fry's as he becomes kind of the scapegoat for the town, um, very much so because of ableism. Mm-hmm. Um, Marguerite herself is like vocal about how his physical appearance frightens her. But, you know, to the professor's credit, he's like, hey, don't say that. <laughs> the yeah. professor, um, yeah, the professor, you know, speaks to his character and, you know, inner beauty and all that. So the professor is woke. And <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> um, but then he says that incredibly strange line where he says, um, where is it? Um, he yeah she 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 says like you know she's voicing her um how she's put off by him and everything he's like speaking up for him and 
she says he's grateful to you because the professor kind of takes him in and is good to him. And the professor says, gratitude is beauty. And I just write, what? <laughs> it, it is a very, yeah, it's a very weird statement. And it is, it is sort of, there is this implication that, you know, oh, one of the reasons that Professor Kristan is so great is that he's the only person that could ever take pity on like an abject figure like Zan, um, which, yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't really love. And then, yeah, and we then don't... they have, yeah, and then he says some weird kind of patronizing stuff, like the gratitude is beauty thing he says, but there's also some other weird, like there's a couple other kind of, kind of strange things that he says. Yeah, he he does say some, like you said, some patronizing stuff. And it's like, Karen, no, <laughs> the writer. It's like, <laughs> yeah. but, you know. <laughs> Karen, <that>. no. Uh. <laughs> Re- reflection of the time, I guess. Um, so we also see that Marguerite has another, um, I don't know if lover is the right term, but there's, what's his name? David? There's yeah, David. David. David, yeah. David's in the picture, um, played by Russell Gleason. He's and, a sweetie. Uh, he, he He's is sweetie. sweetie. You know what? <laughs> I I think I have in my notes as well. I, I like um, at one point I write. Um, yeah, so this is the scene where um, I don't know. They have two. They have a few scenes together that are mm-hmm. basically the same. Where he's just like, "Don't marry the professor." She's like but he's so good and I do like worship him or whatever. And I I write down here, David says, you respect and admire him and even revere him, but that's not love. And I just write, Mm -hmm. damn, David is right. Yeah. Yeah. He is right. He he is right. And uh, he wants to be with Marguerite and she's just like, no, I mean, I'm, I'm worthy enough for the professor to want to marry. I, I got to mm-hmm. do it. So she literally says, I belong to Professor Croissant. <sighs> she doesn't even use his first name. His name is Paul. And right, he, he even, keeps trying to get her yeah. to say Paul. It's and she like, doesn't do it. Yeah, there's there's a total massive power kind of differentiation here mm-hmm. um, that, again, probably would not have been as big a deal in 1935, but mm-hmm. now it's kind of given the ick a little bit even though like the professor is a good guy like it's just again the age gap the the differences in background in experience all of that and how they see each other it's mm, no no thanks um and david and marguerite have a lot more in common aside from genuine love for each other (laughs) (laughs) you know they went to school together they've known each other their whole lives like it 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 is kind of you know and professor Kristan is like this person that she presumably has not known very long and that she was betrothed Mm. to by her father so there's all sorts of reasons that you're right there is something a bit icky about the whole thing with um with the professor um but mm-hmm. I, I, this was another thing that I kind of liked, actually, is that this is like a subplot, like we're getting a subplot for the first time where there's like competing love interests and there's like an actual choice that the female protagonist has to make. Um, and yes. that, felt, mm-hmm. that felt pretty cool that, that she was not just 
Um, and I mean, she is still, she's not full sexy lamp, but there, there is a, some amount of agency in terms of, you know, who is she going to like get closer to? Who is she going to kind of be with in terms mm-hmm. of these two guys? Um, and yeah, yeah, there's a bit more concern with her feelings because I think all of the past films that we've covered, it's been pretty much like there's a woman She's very devoted and in love with her husband or her fiance. And then she's like in danger. And that's kind of everything that she has going on. Yes. No, I would absolutely agree with that. Marguerite does have a character in this movie. And um, the she, these um, other, you know, kind of male figures in her life do consider her feelings and do um, recognize the fact that she does have agency. She can say no. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have to marry the professor if he if she doesn't love him. And we as the audience know that would probably be okay because the professor's a good guy when he's not drinking blood. Um, <laughs> That's a spoiler. <laughs> well, I'm literally going to get you in the next sentence. We find out. Uh, but um, now her, you know, enacting her agency. Mm, that's another story. We yeah. don't uh, we don't necessarily see yeah. that. But I think um, at this point in the movie, I'm just... I don't know. The dialogue just feels very kind of, I mean, no offense. Like, I love that we have a female screenwriter Mm -hmm. um, and that it sounds like she had a very prolific career or I don't know if prolific is the right term. But, you know, as a female writer in Hollywood in the 1930s, she wrote it. She wrote, you know, for decades. She was Mm -hmm. blacklisted. Um, You know, she was in this system for a long time. And Um, That's really cool. But um, the dialogue for me was just kind of clunky and on the nose. I and um, I think it was also just how little of a, I don't know, artistic or stylistic stamp this film had. Yeah, it's it's very I know we're got to get back to the plot, but it's it's a lot of static medium long shots medium Mm -hmm. close-ups the camera doesn't move a lot and there's just a lot of like pauses in dead space yeah um yeah and i i i totally to be honest i totally agree on the dialogue there's also just some some really poorly like placed or organized dialogue like in the opening scene Mm -hmm. they the guy is like one of them is like they'll never come to the cave and the person he's talking to is like why and then he says they fear the vampire bats like they believe that the vampire Mm -hmm. bats will like you know they'll swoop down and attack them and like bite them and then literally seconds later that's exactly what happens we get the first of i think five off-screen screams where like a Mm -hmm. woman just screams and everyone comes running And so it's like they're talking about like, oh, the threat of the vampire bats and then literally immediately a vampire bat attacks. Um, And then you're right that David and Marguerite have, I think, three near identical conversations where he's Mm -hmm. like, you love me. You shouldn't marry this guy just because he's a good guy. And then she's Mm -hmm. like, oh, but this is I belong to him. Like, this is what my father wants. So. So you're right that there is, and then there's, uh, there's some, and you're right that there's also some really on the nose moments as well. Like David has, I think it's happened at this point, but David has that line where there, I think that this line has happened, but there's the scene, there's a scene where all the villagers are kind of discussing the murders and Mm -hmm. you know, that they're like, this is a monster. And David's like, 
use your sense like and he says this is this is i think that this is probably a man someone that you would least expect um Mm -hmm. and i was like ugh, okay (laughs) (laughs) but again david proves right (laughs) david the secret the secret learned man of the story everyone talks about the professor but david is the one with with good sense (laughs) sense yeah yeah exactly so um we find out that The professor is the one who is the murderer and committing these attacks and that at night he is seized um, by these attacks which are triggered by the darkness and Mm -hmm. they transform transform him into a trance-like state of murderousness. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of another interesting thing which we'll get into which is how vampirism as it affects a human is shown in this movie. Yes, yeah. But um, again, we'll, <laughs> not we'll much get at all. Into... He does have the chronic I mean, headaches and the exhaustion. Yeah, so there's like there's a physical side effect to it, um, but in terms of you know how it transforms him, it just it it really just makes him you know grab someone and drink their blood. <laughs> there's um, <laughs> just not much uh, not much else physically or supernatural wise that changes. Um, so after, uh, the professor commits another murder, he awakens from the trance with no memory of his deed, believing himself to just have fainted. Um, this obliviousness is further enabled by the intervention of his, of Zahn, um, who is the only person that is aware of his condition. Um, Zahn follows the professor when he is in these trances, ensuring that he's not discovered. So... An old friend of the professor, Dr. Bizet, who is played I think by... Bizet? Bizet? I, I think they call him Bizet. Yeah. I'm Bizet. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, that is Stop. phonetically how you would assume, but I think they call him Bizet. And yes. good friend is, is definitely true, but the first couple times that he gets introduced this is this was wild to me paul the professor is like this is my foster father and best friend dr Jay. and it's like his foster father they look near identical in age to me at least um like, and there's no did he adopt yeah yeah did he adopt you when you were six and he was seven like yeah yeah it's like and there's no he goes into no further detail of what he even means by foster father um which is which is interesting because like even today i think that 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 something like being a foster child or like growing up in foster care or being adopted like those are still considered to be pretty private things by a lot of people like mm-hmm. I, I think that it would be pretty uncommon for someone to, you know, like just <laughs> to be like, and this is my foster parent. Um, mm-hmm. And then I can't. I mean, I, I, I mean, it would be interesting to know what the sentiment towards adoption um, would have been at the time. Um, well, I feel like there was maybe just a lot less um, oversight. Oh, the oversight or. Um, I don't know, legal parameters to it. Because mm-hmm. I feel like in a lot of older stories, it's just kind of like, she's my ward, or I took her <laughs> in as a, took them in as a young foundling. And, That's um, true, yeah. It's, it's like, I guess did it you was... sign paperwork for that? 
Yeah. Yeah, I guess there really was more of a, it was a bit more of a free-for-all in terms of, like, you could just raise a kid if you access one, I guess. So, Dr. Bizet, friend, daddy, colleague. (laughs) (laughs) Daddy. Yes, yeah. There's some homoerotic moments in this film, I think. Oh, okay. That's interesting. We can discuss that. Yes. Further along. <laughs> I'll always find a way. Life <laughs> finds a way. Homoeroticism <laughs> also finds a way. That's so true. Oh my gosh. And yeah, no, I'm I'm happy that you you picked up on that because yeah. maybe my animosity to the film was turning <laughs> off my ability yeah. to read. You got to a certain point of like, this is bullshit. I refuse to engage. Like, If I have to have one more scene where they're like, my child, do you really love the professor? I will go. Yeah. Um, There's even multiple moments where people compare Marguerite to flowers. Like two identical lines where they're like, you, Marguerite, are like these flowers. And it's like, what? Like beautiful, fragile and, you know, about to die in three days. I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> die young. I, yeah. I don't know. I just, if I was Marguerite, I, I would be moving out of this village, trying to find some more interesting guys to be around yeah. that aren't comparing me to flowers. But, um, so daddy, daddy friend, doctor. <laughs> daddy friend, doctor. <laughs> doctor Bizet arrives. And this is where we have our 1500th scene. I think with Daniel <laughs> Daniel saying, don't do it. Don't marry him. Or yeah. saying, I'm going to. But then Dr. Bizet, to his credit, like a good bro slash dad, um, talks with Marguerite and kind of susses out that she is not in love with the professor, though she does mm-hmm. love and respect him. And, you know, is maybe a little too moon eyed about him. The doctor then talks with the professor um, and says, you know, she's she's young. She might not know the difference, but um, yeah, it, it's clear she really respects you, but that's not the same as being in love. And the professor uh-huh. is just like, but if she feels this way, why didn't she tell me? And yeah. Yeah. again, the professor just being very unaware of this like power differential between them. Um, but, you know, good for you, Dr. Bizet. Everyone is now clearly kind of being like, mm, let's not with this marriage then dr bizet discloses to paul um the professor that his mother had been bitten by a vampire bat so the audience learns that the woman the pregnant woman that was bitten in the beginning of the film is in fact the professor's mother Mm -hmm. and that traits of vampirism have likely been passed down to him per lamarchism lamarchism is that a thing fascinating i'm i'm looking this up you've also just reminded me of like a pretty big plot hole because or a pretty big complication is that that first scene in the cave it then says one year later there's a series of murders and it's like how could that scene have taken place the day before professor the professor was born if then the events of the film take place a year later and he's in his late 40s 
You know, it's it's already very Bella pregnancy with how the vampirism is passed to the professor. Maybe the professor's also like Renesmee, where he just aged super quickly in the span of one year. Okay, Lamarckism is real. Uh, it's it's a <laughs> in in the sense that it's like it's it's a real fake idea. Yeah, <laughs> um, love it. So yeah, so it is. Um, Lamarckism, also known as Lamarckian inheritance, is the notion that an organism can pass on to its offspring physical characteristics that the parent organism acquired through use or disuse during its lifetime. It is also called the inheritance of acquired characteristics, or more recently, soft inheritance. So, like, the idea that, like, if you, I guess I'm trying to think of an example, like the idea that if you like worked in construction and you went deaf, that your child mm. could like be born deaf because you went deaf oh. during your lifetime. And it's like, that's not <laughs> like you don't how it works. Yeah, exactly. But this would have been. Um, <clears throat> I wonder when this was in relation to DNA, because it seems like this would have predated DNA by like. 100 plus years when did I, dna I mean, get invented sense. is the autofill <laughs> wow um, so that's what yeah, the, lamarckism mm -hmm. is now the history of dna and how that was discovered that's a whole can of worms because yeah also very interesting very interesting history Oh, fascinating. DNA was first isolated by the Swish, 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 Swiss <laughs> physician Friedrich Meischer, who in 1869 discovered a microscopic substance in the pus of discarded surgical bandages. Oh, in 1909, Phobus, Phoebus Levine identified the base sugar and phosphate nucleotide unit of RNA. In 1929, Levine identified deoxyribose sugar um, in thymus nucleic acid, so DNA. Uh, mm -hmm. So the first time that we found DNA was 1869, but we didn't know what it was then. Mm -hmm. um, so that actually, yeah, so Lamarckism, the the... Jean-Baptiste Lamarck lived from 1744 to 1829. So he missed even the notion that DNA was a thing by 40 years. Mm, interesting. Um, yes. But the, the Wikipedia example is a guy hammering steel and it says a blacksmith gets strong muscles from his work dot 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 and his sons inherit those strong muscles <laughs> <laughs> just a jacked baby like <laughs> six-pack baby comes out of the womb it just comes out yeah. oh my god oh that's wild um well in the case of this film lamarckism is apparently real and the the vampire bat passed the vampirism into the fetus which was the professor this who apparently is one year old now so yeah. <laughs> he ages 40 years in a year this, 
you know what? This drastically changes the power differential between him and Marguerite. Marguerite is very much his senior now. Yes, <laughs> yeah. She's the one with all the cards. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so uh, Dr. Pizet discloses this information. And um, so Marguerite uh, is at home with her father and her father was given strict instructions not to let anyone alone with her. Um, but the professor, anyone, anyone at all, any, they say it anyone, so many times, anyone. Like, <laughs> and just like, there's this long pause and her dad just goes, I understand professor. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, narration, it was clear. He did not understand. Um, <laughs> so, um, so the professor goes to Marguerite, um, to, you know, basically release, as he says, release her from her engagement. It's like, what a lovely way we used to put being engaged, like, or the breakup of an engagement is, I release you. I release you from the bonds of this contract. Cause I, yeah, because I remember this the same in, like, A Christmas Carol, when his fiance breaks up with him, she's like, so I release you, Ebenezer. It's like, Jesus. Okay. Yeah. So, what a um, funny, what a funny, I was not expecting like, a Christmas Carol to be the thing. <laughs> no, listen, that's like, I might put it down for one of my episodes because it's like, honestly, no one has watched this version from the 50s, I feel like, with um, Alistair Sim. And I'm like, this one is great. And it's really dark. It is dark for like a 1950s film. Like, I feel like, mm-hmm. it, I don't know, it, it taps into like the very tragic nature of the story, but again maybe an episode for another day around christmas time um (laughs) (laughs) a full year from now a full year from now we'll still we'll still be in the 60s of vampire films probably i wonder (laughs) if there are any christmas vampire movies (gasps) oh surely there are that has to be a thing um Oh wow! I mean, yeah, we can we can look into it. Yeah, I think a Valentine's Day vampire movie that could be like that could be interesting, nice and saucy. (laughs) (laughs) I would love that. Well, it's not vampires, but uh, I am going to see Lisa Frankenstein this weekend. So, okay, cool. Yeah, I mean that's like in the same. That's cousins, sisters. It's, It's cousins. No, like I'm saying, at some point we'll have to review the absolutely wild Kenneth Branagh Frankenstein adaptation, mm-hmm. uh, which was meant to capitalize on the Bram Stoker Dracula that came out in 92, I think. But um, yeah, yeah. no, that movie is wild. Kenneth Branagh was given all the choices and he made them. And every single one. <laughs> every single one. <laughs> he um, is a fascinating figure. Like, he's a really, he really interesting guy i actually really liked his version of hamlet um it was very beautiful yeah, no, yeah i i've seen scenes of it but um i i appreciate uh his his desire to bring a lot of shakespeare to the big screen in his um very kind of stylistic way and mm-hmm. he's i yeah and i also like i really enjoy his i know some people don't but i really enjoy his uh Hercule Poirot films Oh, I haven't seen any of them, actually. Yeah, I mean, my, so my partner, he's been reading the books. And Mm -hmm. um, I mean, those films kind of have a special place in my heart. We saw Death on the Nile for a third date. And then we watched Murder on the Orient Express after that. So um, yeah, anyway, like we see those movies a lot, but um, I I enjoy them. Um, Those are Agatha Christie adaptations, right? Yeah. Yes. 
they are. So cool. Uh, he's he's a big adapter. Yeah, <laughs> he is. I think it, that's one of the things that's interesting about him is that the vast majority of his films are adaptations, and he's starred in every single one of his films. Yes, and I I never doubt every time he is in a film, he is putting a hundred and ten percent into it, and I respect that. <laughs> He's a true um, actor. He um. is a true actor. Um, anyway, back to whatever is happening in Condemned to Live. I'm sorry. Um, Everyone so, has been told to stay in their homes with yes. lights. And this is actually something that has come up before, but that I think is the emphasis on light is mm. really, really intense. Like, it's it's interesting because we haven't really... Like in the past films, this idea of like not being able to go in the daylight is pretty mm-hmm. standard. Like we get that right. in, in all of them. Um, and that's like very much part of the mythology. But this mm-hmm. idea, I don't know if we've had a film where light itself, regardless of if it's coming from the sun, is a pro- is a protectant um, or like wards off vampires. Well, and so I thought that yeah. was kind of interesting that it was like, keep your candles lit. Um. Yeah, and um, I mean, I think we just have Nosferatu where Helen reads that uh, the only way for a vampire to be destroyed is by... Well, actually, it's kind of weird. It's like he needs to be distracted by drinking the blood of a pure woman uh-huh. so he doesn't hear the cock crow, <laughs> thereby implying that the sun's light will kill him, which it does in the movie. So I think that's the only case where sunlight or light of any capacity has been used to destroy the vampire i think that in mark of the vampire you learn that vampires can only be killed during the day or that that's something that's said is that like vampires are invulnerable at night Mm -hmm. um the Nosferatu thing is it's so it's like there's so many layers to it of like <laughs> drinking blood from a pure woman like, <laughs> at dawn so he's distracted yeah. so he doesn't yeah. hear the rooster <laughs> so that the sun and it's like there's what if so it was a steps. cloudy yeah exactly what if it was a cloudy day or like what if he like stopped drinking or what if he like literally just moved away from the open window? Yeah. Or like pure woman feels, yeah. It's like, does he have to be in the sun's rays or like, what is it? Um, and pure women, woman, pure women, pure woman also feels kind of vague because like, yes, I think the obvious assumption would be like a virgin, but she's married. So it's like, I guess pure in the context of, she has only been sexual within the the bounds of marriage yeah. or... or like pure of heart pure of soul yeah. pure of intentions like what it well, like plenty of plenty like of just took a bath se- <laughs> like... plenty of sexually adventurous people are pure of heart <laughs> but that's that's what i mean is that's yeah, what i yeah. yeah that's what i mean is yeah, like it's the, like does the it pure... exactly yeah, that I would I would not associate pure with someone's sex life at all. Like, oh god, I would. I think in twenty twenty four, I would hope we as a society do not. But yeah, uh, time changes slowly, though. Progress, yeah. is, progress is slow. Um, so uh, going off that train of light and its effect. Marguerite begins to put out the candles, which the professor is like, no, don't do it. Wait, but did like, we say that he goes to the house to see her? Yes. Okay, I, I cool. We did. Yes. The yeah. professor is at the house, like I said, to quote unquote, release her um, because mm-hmm. of his quote illness. Um, mm-hmm. So we see the effects of it 
the vampirism coming on, she starts to put out the candle lights because she thinks it's affecting him, which it is. Um, yeah. And he's His like, no, don't do it. She's, yeah. She's like, no, it's okay. She's like, sit by the fire. But, you know, he still transforms. It's too late. And she screams. Well, she puts out every single light. She does. Like, it's, uh, okay. What do you we, think I, of that? Because I saw a review where someone was like, this was completely unbelievable, where he's like, um, the light is what keeps the monster yeah, he away. Knows, yeah, he has this knowledge that that's what affects him because yeah. he knows he's infected. It's really dumb. Um, yeah, and he's begging her not to do it. And it's, it's the like, first time that she's put her foot down or made a heart, a decision about anything where she's like, no, <laughs> we are blowing out these candles. <laughs> we have the fire. It's fine. Stop overreacting. Yeah, um, and she yeah, says no, it, the room is bright as day because of the light of the moon yeah, and it's no, like it, that's not true <laughs> it's not true it's like it makes no sense and it's like oh my god paul just say no tell her to stop like if you care about her and not wanting to turn into a monster that drinks her blood like yeah tell her to leave the candles lit but that doesn't happen and paul transforms which is kind of equivalent to him just like suddenly making an angry face and she screams and um this is when Daniel like <laughs> sorry that's such a hilarious he makes an angry face you're so right though he really does just like furrow his brow, brow and that's like, and, like it. but that's enough for her to go like no he's a monster yeah. now um yeah so all kind of the supporting the, the Scooby gang busts in with Daniel Dr. Bizet and um her dad <laughs> the Scooby gang yeah there's they always arrive. a Scoob there's always a Scooby gang in these films that gotta take yeah. the vampire down down in the uh, so mob of stupid villagers. <laughs> the mob of stupid villagers, which, you know, appear. And Zahn um, is there as well. And, of course, the mob scapegoats him and chases him mm-hmm. in very the vampire bat fashion. He saves Marguerite he, because yes, he yes. pulls the doctor off of Away. her. Right. And, so he, and he even attacks Zan too. Like, he has a wound on his throat as well. Mm-hmm. Um. um yeah, no, like, again, just, you know, the uncomfortable, you know, ableism, which, I mean, sadly, I think would have been, yes, apparent at the time, is there. And so we yeah. we chase Zahn, despite Zahn being the one who saved Marguerite, the mob chases uh-huh. him. And um, this is when, uh, oh my gosh, it is wild, I think. I, I might have wrote, written it down in my notes, but so the mob is chasing on to the caves uh-huh. and Dr. Bizet is talking to Paul about what happened. Marguerite's okay. She just yeah. fainted. And while they're talking, Paul suddenly realizes, wait, they're chasing Zahn. We yeah. should go stop them. Yeah. And there's this really, it might not have been this scene, but there's a really horrible moment just in terms of like people being so suspicious of Zan and so like yeah you know is there's a scene where one person says one villager says to another what good can there be in a hunchback Um, because because one person is like well the professor takes care of him he lives with the professor like there must be a reason that the professor thinks he's good and then the person responds and says like what good can there be in a hunchback and it's like a really fucked up moment and a, and a yeah. really you're right like a very brutally ableist thing to say yeah. and believe i mean that's a good way to put it it is brutally ableist i i don't know if like again because we don't know what time period this movie takes place in 
It's further in <laughs> the, the ambiguous past. time of some people are the dressed ambig- kind yeah. of like German, t- like little villagers, yeah, like and then German, other people yeah, are in their three-piece suits. And, yeah, no, exactly. But um, yeah, so it's like, I don't know, for an audience in 1935, would that have also been seen as ableist as well? I don't know, because again, we don't know what time period this film takes place in. But um, yeah, regardless, brutally ableist and... Um, yeah, it's very sad. And we are chasing Zahn. And like I said, just the professor suddenly being like, you know what? I think this is actually the scene where Bizet tells the professor about the vampirism in his mother. It is, yeah. Oh, okay. So then if that's the case, then the professor is not aware. No, he doesn't. So what happens is that when they have the conversation by the fire, he... They they kind of have a conversation that acknowledges that these spells of like memory loss and fatigue mm-hmm. and when he passes out, like that these spells like do align with the deaths that are happening, that it is suspicious that he but basically like what they what the the result of that conversation is that they both agree that um, that he can't marry Marguerite until his mm-hmm. malady is cured. And that's how they really refer to it as like a malady, an illness, a sickness, um, mm-hmm. which I think ties into some of the things that you've touched on in terms of this being a sympathetic vampire right. story. But then mm-hmm. the attack on Marguerite happens, the crowd chases Zan away, um, and the d- doctor, <laughs> doctor daddy friend is like, <laughs> I will tell you the full story. Like, I will give uh, you okay. the full okay. context. Gotcha. Um, um, yeah. Yes. So with this full context, Paul, Dr. Bizet just now realized that maybe they should go help Son. Um, yeah. Uh, so they arrive at the caves um, and the professor confesses to the murders despite... Um, mm-hmm. Zon protesting and just well Zahn David arrives really, first David arrives first that's yeah right. um and yeah Zon is just very ride or die um he, is, his devotion is so yeah. intense but this and, is I also wanted to rewind just like a couple seconds before then just because I was really shocked by so they chase him to the cave he's kind of hiding around a corner they're all there and the villagers start to talk about like what they're gonna do with him and it mm-hmm. is so graphic like they yep talk they they talk about like beating him to death they talk about mm-hmm. beheading him and putting a head on his spike they talk about trapping him in a cave in a cage and putting him in the town square so they can watch him starve to death they talk about hanging him publicly in the square and leaving his body there like they they really and it's different people kind of being like what if we did this what if we did this like a mm-hmm. town hall meeting and it is so I think it's some of the most violent dialogue we've had so far yeah. and some of the most like violent implications that we've had. Um, mm-hmm. And then David shows up and he's like, this isn't right. Like Zan isn't involved in this. Like it's clearly not him. It doesn't make mm-hmm. sense. And then he says it's the doctor. And then right. the townspeople freak out and 
they're like you're in league with him like you're the fiend's servant like you're helping protect Zan and Zan is Mm -hmm. definitely the monster and then you're right that then the doctor shows up and he's like Zan is innocent they don't believe him he shows them the wound on Zan's neck and then he's like you're right he's like the monster is I I think is is what he says so you're right that then he reveals himself so he reveals himself um and then the professor proceeds to um kill himself by jumping over the edge of the cliff and inside the cave (laughs) it's a cliff inside a cave sure why not and Zahn follows, and and um, the doctor says to Marguerite and Paul, like, you, you both are, or not Paul, uh, Marguerite and David, you both are free and safe, uh-huh. the evil is gone, and the breeding pair go forth unfettered, end film. Yeah, and then it just ends. Um, and the, and yeah. then it just ends. It's like very similar to Bela Lugosi. Yeah, both Dracula. Again, we have we have had so many vampire films where the couple just kind of walks away. And, and then it, Vampire it also ended that way. Yeah, um, yeah. The the breeding pair goes forth. Um, yeah. Well. Well, that was content <laughs> to live. <laughs> yes. Um, oh, and they, and they actually say that in, I think this is our oh, first example right. of the title, title of the drop. film appearing in the, yeah, because when yes. Dr. Bizet is telling um, Paul the full story, he's like, yes. your mother was bitten, and then a day later you were born, condemned to live. Which, I'm not going to lie, that's a that's a cool line. It was. I was like, oh, nice. Like they, it was yeah. actually not that corny at all to have it yeah. included. Um, Condemned to live. Yes. <laughs> Condemned. Condemned to live. Yes. But, yes, yeah, so... All right, I know... Um, you said you liked this one a lot more. I uh-huh. did not so much, mainly because I think it was just um, as a f- film, it's it's pretty mid. Uh, yeah. Not very good in terms of uh, some of the acting, uh, much of the dialogue being very sort of um, clunky or hokey or on the nose, and just a lot in terms of the directing. Yeah, and how. Um, I guess un- unstylish or unpolished it seems, uh, but I know there's there's certainly stuff um, that can be said in praise of the narrative or what it was doing in terms of the theme of vampires and vampirism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I have to I agree that artistically, when when you look at the formal elements of the film, there's nothing impressive. It's very stage like. The camera sits in one place. The framing is like the characters are all at the center of the frame. It could very easily have been a play. And, you know, so there's not much going on with the cinematography, not much going on with the editing. I think there was only one moment of like visual interest where the professor is reading at his desk and it kind of paint like zooms in on the candle sitting there and then the candle like burns out and is like complete there's no wax left and then it zooms back out and it's dark and the professor is like asleep on the desk like that's the only time that something interesting happened with the Mm -hmm. camera so like you're right that when you look at like the technical and formal elements of the film there's really not much going on um but 
Yeah, I think in terms of I just okay, it just occurred to another plot hole just occurred to me. (laughs) Because now that we're talking about it, I'm seeing some gaps in the story here or things that don't really make sense. Because when Bizet is like telling the story to Paul, one thing that that Paul is like, how has this not like, you know, why is this just now happening? Like, have I been doing this the whole time? Like, have I been killing people the whole time? And he's like, no, you were totally normal your whole life. Now it's just because you're exhausted and overworked that, like, you're having these spells because, like, your body is not, like, I guess you don't have enough energy to, like, resist, naturally mm-hmm. resist the temptation to blood. And so then, and him working really hard is a theme from the very beginning of the film. Like, I will, mm-hmm. I will say that they establish that he is a very selfless person and is constantly doing everything for everyone. Like, there's a scene where a little girl is like, read my homework. And yeah. he's like, yeah, I'll do it right away. And then like, and he does. So, yeah, and he does. It's like, so, yeah. I, I, yeah, that's definitely what I do with my students when they ask grading it first thing (laughs) yeah um and just for this random little girl when he has all these things going on um but so that raises the question of like when he kills himself it's like bro just take a vacation and you know like (laughs) come back on your yeah come back on your work hours (laughs) like like killing yourself just seems and obviously yes he's committed several murders but he didn't even remember (laughs) them well that's what i'm saying i think we're we're still in in this period of time where you know if you commit murder gosh your soul sure is damned or whatever or it's just like you're you're done morally as a person Tara Just, coming out pro murder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now no, I know like, that's not I, what you're I'm saying. Fighting. I'm just, yeah. God forbid a man have a hobby. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's true that there are situations where, like, I've seen, um, I've seen incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people talk about how, like, in prison, murder is not actually like the thing that will get you ostracized. Um, And, you know, that like, because there's self-defense and, you know, like sometimes it's, you know, sometimes Mm self-defense is genuine. Obviously when it comes to like stand your ground laws, like those are um, people Mm -hmm. claim self-defense and it's like, no, you just wanted to kill a person of color. Like you just wanted to kill Mm -hmm. someone who like came into your driveway to do a K turn. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that's literally, I think that happened in the past year three people were shot and killed because they were lost and they backed into a driveway so they could turn around and someone came out with a shotgun and and killed them. But I have seen people talk about how like there are quote unquote worse sins than murder, um, you know, in community, you know, in, in prison communities and things. Yeah. The one that always gets you ostracized is typically, um, you know, if you, abuse a child in any way or Mm -hmm. um um, crimes like sexual assault like those yeah abusing helpless people i think is or like elder abuse i think that those Mm -hmm. are typically the things that will really kind of get you like a bad reputation and that people won't want to associate with you um and i think probably also really wealthy people doing shitty yeah, things that harm the nice others they're in the sports. nice prisons yeah 
Um, or like um, Jeffrey Epstein was probably like in solitary for a reason, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, I know that's, a, you know, we there's the very common conspiracy theory that he did not commit suicide. But I remember I watched I was watching a video with one person. They just said, no, if he was smart, he probably did kill himself. I think that there's some suspicious stuff of like the security footage being sure, mysteriously sure. deleted and the fact that like he seemed pretty staunchly invested in maintaining his innocence and stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, yes, that's a that's I, I do agree with that. It's quite um, convenient. I, <laughs> Elliot coming out. Epstein did not kill himself. <laughs> I'm just saying it's not like beyond the pale that he would have done that. Like that's oh, yeah. the most unfathomable thing. It's like, I mean, no, like we're just saying in prison, he would not have been popular. Um, no, they're equally likely. Um yeah. And, but yeah, I think you're right that, that this is like the first film that isn't like you're damned for all eternity. You're like truly evil yeah. and irredeemable mm-hmm. and like a monster. Um, like you're right that this is the first time that there's some acknowledgement of, you know that he's a person and, and they never call him a vampire that's one thing that i noticed was that yeah people call the the townspeople refer to the monster mm-hmm. and then when it comes to like conversations with paul like a lot of times like they call it like his illness or his malady like i was saying and even mm-hmm. when they've acknowledged like even in the conversation with Bizet where they've like fully like aired it out that he is the person committing these murders. Um, He says like, what will happen to me? And he says, if we don't find a cure, you will be overtaken Mm -hmm. by this madness. Like you will be consumed by this madness. And I thought that that was a really interesting way of like, no one ever says you're going to become a vampire. Yeah. Yeah. There is an interesting trend of euphemistic language around it. I think. And yes, we're still very much in the, you know, if I have vampirism, just mm, kill, like, better to better to not live than to live as a creature of the night. Because we're <laughs> we're a long, long way from vampirism being seen as something that's cool or liberatory mm-hmm. or like a higher state of being. Or even um, or something that you can higher state of being is interesting or something that that you can kind of live alongside, like that you don't yeah. have to like jump off a cliff inside a cave. <laughs> a cliff. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. But um, yeah, no, it does. It, it is the first film we've watched where the vampire is, cause I think, you know what? I think our last actual on-screen vampire was um, vampire because after that we have, the vampire bat, which there's no vampire. We have Mark of the Vampire, no vampires technically. Yeah. So, which is um, so, so, that honestly, like, that's wild. That was back to back. It is really interesting that it was back to back. And also, like, Mark of the Vampire does not hold up to any scrutiny when it comes to the idea that, like, they're actors. Because I remember you yeah. pointed out where you were like, she- she turns into a bat. Into a bat. <laughs> and so does Count. Yeah, so does Count Count Mora, yeah, like played by Lugosi. I, like you also see him turn into a bat, and it's like they 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 were that committed to their craft. Yeah, um. no one's that good. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, this is the first film where we've had the 
the vampire be the main character and yeah you're right we, we as we as the audience um are familiar with who they are in their humanity and um how it affects them to learn that they uh-huh. are a vampire and have committed these murders so yeah no kudos to the movie for that yeah i think that's really and that's one of the things that i liked about it was that i thought that was genuinely really creative um and definitely because i think our last two films i know that mark of the vampire also came out in 1935 Mm -hmm. and i i think that maybe the vampire bat was 34 Mm -hmm. i can't remember for sure but even just in the period of like the same year we have a film that has like a totally different interpretation of, you know, and even the idea that vampirism is like a, like an illness that can be passed down is like, that's not real science. Um, But, you know, (laughs) like, but just the idea that it, it could be something that's like genetically passed from like mother to child in utero, you know, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that because we have seen the, um, vampirism being genetically passed down through pregnancy in stories before, but I'm it, it's one of the less common ones as opposed to simply being bitten and transformed. And I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on that being a a way to vampirism? Um, <laughs> that, that's interesting. Do you mean before this film, or just like in our before we watch this film? Because like things like twilight just in general yeah just just in in general in terms of vampire mythology i think the idea of a vampire baby is really funny (laughs) um, like how does it because it's like is the baby like strong enough to hunt for itself or it's like i'm guessing that it's like a thing where like the mom like is there breast milk in that situation or is there just blood like it raises questions but yeah I think the idea of um it is interesting to have that as the idea because one stay like one stay or mainstay or like consistent element is that being turned into a vampire is traumatizing. Like even vampires that really like being vampires, they remember it being traumatizing. And even if it was, yeah. Like one of the most traumatizing. Yeah. And he really likes it. He's like, this is the best. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it is like, there is kind of, you're losing that element of like the tragic backstory and like the the terrible event that happens of you know like true blood Mm -hmm. um oh god i can't believe that i'm forgetting her name but the redhead no um, is it is her name karen no um that works at merlots with them yeah she becomes the Um, yeah the redhead oh i know who you're talking about what is her name Oh, Jesus. I forget, I but maybe, I, oh, I know who you're talking maybe about. Maybe it is Karen. I don't know. I can't remember. Um, but anyway, like her, like the trauma of her turning is a major plot point for Bill and for her. Um, oh, 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 no. Um, Jessica. Jessica. Yeah. So I'm thinking of the, 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 the human lady with red hair who's really oh, bigoted oh, against vampires. And yeah. Yeah. Mary's um, Terry. Terry. Oh, her and Terry. Yes. Um, yeah. But Karen, like 
Karen's turning is a big plot point for obviously for her, Jessica. but also for Bill. <laughs> Karen, oh, you know Jessica. what? It's, it's Daredevil. You're thinking of she was oh, in Daredevil. That's right, and she, she, plays, Karen. she plays a woman she named was, Karen. Daredevil. Yes, that, yes. What an amazing part. And she she's a great actress. She, Deborah she is and Wool. Deborah. Yes. And, well, yeah. Where she's is an, she? She's very I talented. demand she get more parts. Yeah. Um, she does D&D stuff. She just released her own like D&D campaign oh, or nice. book or something. But oh, cool. um, anyway, so like and then Bill's turning is also like very much a big part of the story, like his relationship yeah, with his I maker. Mean, honestly, yeah. Honestly, Eric had a relatively okay transformation he was about to die anyway um, yeah but at the time Godric he was King. like are you the devil are you a yeah. demon oh yeah like he so he that, was like he would have right. fought if he could have true um, true yeah. um no i think that's a good point is like so much of vampirism or the 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 trope or the figure of the vampire is so tied into this idea of them having a tragic um or traumatic transformation from human into vampire because mm-hmm. we you know that's still very much ingrained within the mythos which is like yeah. becoming a vampire is bad um, it's or being like, murdered like you have to get you, yeah you, you die and then you have to essentially yeah you do have to murder afterwards not always but <laughs> Yeah, so um, it's sort of funny imagining someone who was like born into vampirism, kind of like mm-hmm. trying to become friends with other, like in adulthood, trying to become friends with other vampires. And there's like, they're at the bar yeah. and like everyone's <laughs> like, you know, talking about like the nightmares mm-hmm. that they have. And then he's like, yeah, like just always been this way, grew up in a vampire family, just, you know. Just always had the craving. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he's then like, I have don't like, have any tragic backstory, oh you know. God. Yeah, you have like Louie and Bill in the corner like, we're monsters. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, I, I oh my God. Vampire. You know what also just occurred to me is that mm. that that a vampire that was born a vampire would never be able to miss the sun, which is such a core aspect of our yeah. idea of vampires now that they would have never seen That's the so sun. True. So they wouldn't be able to feel that loss. Um, because yes. one of the big themes as well is that vampires are like, yes, I gained immortality. Yes, I gained strength, but I lost the sun. I lost, mm-hmm. um, you know, I lost like all of these other things that are like aspects of being a human. So that's really that you've actually raised that. I thought that was just kind of a silly question, but now that I'm like, no, silly mm-hmm. questions are good. But now that I'm really thinking about it, that actually raises some really interesting questions, like cultural differences mm-hmm. <laughs> between mm-hmm. like born and turned vampires. Yeah. Oh, wow. That is fascinating. Like, yeah. What kind of life is Renesmee going to have? Well, they can go. She can go on the sun. It doesn't. Well, yeah. Doesn't affect true. her. I don't know. But she's not going to be able to relate to other vampires very well when it comes to, yeah. Yeah, but, um, yeah, that's interesting. But, yeah, (laughs) the the cultural experience of being born a vampire versus becoming (laughs) one. Yes. Yeah. Born or married Uh into it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I guess it is sort of like a lot of, that's a lot more common in werewolf stuff. Where there is, Mm. I think it's a lot more common to have an idea that there are some werewolves that are, 
you know, born into werewolf families. They're like of werewolf bloodlines. And then there's like werewolves that are given the bite, you know? Right. Yeah. That's a good point. I think there is more of that in uh, werewolf mythology. Um, Yeah. So did we have any, Oh, I know you said there was a bit of maybe some queer subtext. (laughs) Professor and homoeroticism. Foster daddy and (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think that the relationship between Paul and Zan is is really interesting because Paul seems very devoted to Zan. Um, They go everywhere together. But and Zan is like so deeply and intensely devoted Mm -hmm. to Paul. Like when the villagers all storm in after Marguerite is attacked, you know, like multiple people are like saying like it doesn't make sense for it to be Zan and then they ask they ask him directly and he doesn't defend himself he says that he Mm -hmm. didn't see the monster that he doesn't know and then he runs away which seems like a pretty big kind of admission of guilt but the the thing that kind of struck me was and and maybe I'm just like reading into it but the thing that kind of struck me was like they have this really intense embrace, you know, like mm-hmm. when the mm-hmm. professor arrives, when Paul arrives to the cave and he's like, Zan is innocent. He goes up to him and he shows people Zan's neck. He just kind of grabs his clothes and pulls them to the side mm-hmm. and he he leaves his arm around Zan. And then Zan, like they're hugging each other really tightly mm-hmm. for the mm-hmm. rest of the yeah. scene. And then, interesting, yeah. And then the professor... Um, and he's like saying like, no, like, don't like, it's me. I'm the monster. Even while the professor is trying to like take responsibility, um, and take Mm -hmm. accountability for it. Like Zan is like, no, don't do that. And then when the professor throws himself over the edge of the cliff or sinkhole or like ravine or whatever it is, Zan is like, no, he screams and he runs Mm -hmm. after the professor and throws himself over the edge. And that just seemed like a lot of characters have talked about love and what love is throughout the course of the film. And that Marguerite is like actually in love with David and has confused the feelings Mm -hmm. that she has for the professor, like the kind of idolatry that she has for the professor for love. And it's kind of like, it kind of raises the question of like, Zan seems to have very intense feelings for the professor. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's like, there is some degree of like, maybe it's the same thing as Marguerite where maybe Zan thinks Mm -hmm. that he loves the professor, but really he's just like idolizing him. Or there's also the aspect that like, clearly this town is not a safe place for Zan. He might feel that he's indebted to the professor for taking Mm -hmm. him into his home and keeping him safe. Um, But their relationship is to me one of the more you could read it as maybe one of the more loving ones because multiple times we see Paul defend Zan to others, even to Marguerite where Marguerite kind of gasps and recoils from Zan Mm -hmm. and then he leaves the room and he's like, you shouldn't have done that. Like you shouldn't Mm -hmm. have reacted to him that way. Like beauty is something that's on the inside. I think he says Mm -hmm. is like beauty of the body is like irrelevant. Like true beauty is like inside yourself. Um, Mm -hmm. So 
their their relationship is just interesting to me and it's one of the things that if this film was longer than an hour and five minutes <laughs> i would have liked scenes devoted to their relationship and to seeing mm-hmm. how they are when they're alone with each other because presumably they do spend a lot of time alone with each other but we never actually mm-hmm. see that yeah yeah no that's that's a really good point and I can definitely see that perspective with their relationship. Um, uh, did you, I guess I, I, with my initial question, I was thinking more of the professor and doctor, um, the other doctor that comes in. Is- oh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there can be more than one. Yeah, they can just, it could they, be the whole polycule. <laughs> they seem close. I didn't really get like a yeah. gay vibe. <laughs> I didn't get a gay vibe from, um, yeah. <laughs> no, but I didn't get, um, I definitely got that they were really important to each other. I think I did get a bit of a, and the foster father thing just continues to be perplexing because they really look like so similar in age. They um, do. And, yeah. but again, I don't think time matters in this film because the no. professor one year old um yes (laughs) one going on 45 uh yeah time works weird in this one um but i think that there is something to be like a lot of the films we've watched the relationships are so one note you know where it's like mm -hmm. this is my dad he tells me what to do this is my fiance he tells me that he loves me and that he wants me to be safe like this is my Mm -hmm. friend we hang out together and i'm sad when she gets murdered (laughs) like you know like it's very on the nose yeah it's very surface level um Mm -hmm. yeah but those were those were kind of some of the things that i found kind of interesting um, and it's like, because the censorship is so weird, the hug between Zan and the professor is so much more like intense than like any of the hugs we've seen between Marguerite and David, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, where like, they're really like gripping each other, you know, mm-hmm. they can, you can see the imprints it's they're a, making in each other's clothes. Yeah. You could argue a codependent relationship. That's true. You could you could absolutely argue that. Yeah. But when we see Marguerite and David together, like they sit close to each other and I think they smooch each other once. But it's it's pretty passionless. I I wonder when we're going to get to passion. (laughs) Yeah. When are. Yeah. It's like, when are we going to have a heterosexual passion? (laughs) Yes. When are they going to have like ardor for each other you know when is that going to be allowed is the question yeah exactly yeah (laughs) it's very much the 1930s of come here sweetheart and like planting like they do those like hard smack kisses they do where they're pursing their where they they really are like pressing their faces together briefly and also like because of the haze code there was like specific kinds of kissing and for specific lengths that you could do it for all that stuff mm-hmm. um no french kissing no tongue <laughs> uh, <laughs> that didn't exist in 1935 um they didn't know what that was <laughs> <laughs> of course not it's french we're in america um, <laughs> um, um yeah that's funny yeah so i think those are about all my thoughts on the film did you have any other um no i mean another pretty quiet film we didn't really 
have much in the way of music except like the kind of the racism about the drums at the start of the film (laughs) yeah that was interesting and apparently if imdb is to be believed it's the same music from the vampire bat but oh that actually makes a lot of sense because i remember being like this feels kind of familiar wow yeah okay that's really interesting actually speaking of sound there was one other moment where i thought that the drums were coming back because there was this kind of thumping sound yeah like when marguerite got attacked and then i thought it was meant to be like heart beating like a heartbeat Uh, yeah i don't i don't recall that i i honestly think it might have been like some sort of mistake or some sort of like there was some bumping of the mic or something that happened during shooting because the version that I saw on Amazon Prime, there were some there were some like stutters. I wouldn't call them full jump cuts, but there were some scenes where it was clear that they'd lost a few frames. So there was like a few times where a character stuttered or like moved mm-hmm. weirdly. And then there were also a few scenes where like this big kind of scratch or artifact would appear in the right hand upper corner of the frame where like clearly there'd been some Mm -hmm. damage to the reel of some kind. So Mm -hmm. it's also possible that that was just kind of shoddy production and that they couldn't really do anything about it in the edit. Um, But yeah, another sign of what you were saying in terms of like the kind of lower, but they were an indie production. They were doing the best they could. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Condemned to Live is an indie film. (laughs) art house cinema um yeah well i guess there's all that's left is just like picking a favorite moment or that's a significant Um, moment favorite moment the end (laughs) like when it was over (laughs) oh my god um well, I guess, do you want I'm, to say anything about why you didn't like it so much? I guess you kind of have. But. Yeah, just for the reasons I've outlined. I think while it's cool that it, it was an outlier for the time or it was progressive in the sense of how it depicts the vampire sympathetic and the vampire is the main character, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's, I don't think, it wasn't really enough for to save it for me in terms of just the technical aspects and mm-hmm. a very kind of clunky script and very one-dimensional characters um mm-hmm. but yeah all yeah fair and, uh, and true and, assessments <laughs> and in terms of favorite moments i guess i just i like the shots on the beach by the cave i think there was one where zon was holding one of the professor's victims maybe or someone was carrying a body on the um, beach was, yeah i must have missed show. that okay oh, yeah it was artistic i liked it okay Cool. I think my favorite moment was not a moment. I think that Professor Christon's, like Paul's, the actor who played Paul, I Mm -hmm. I liked his performance. Yeah. There were some moments where I, like when he realizes that when Bizet tells him the whole story and like how he's the one that's been committing these crimes, like he kind of mm-hmm. expresses some like anguish that I felt that like that I kind of believed, yeah. you know? Um, so I mm-hmm. thought that, uh, you know, like in terms of acting and stuff, there wasn't really, there isn't much to say. So I think he stood out to me as like the best actor. Yeah. 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 No, I, I would agree. He was good. He was one of the better parts of the movie. 
Uh-huh. All right. He's a little bit sexy. I liked his beard. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> the beard was nice. He rocked that goatee. Yeah. Thank you for listening to another episode of This Podcast Sucks. Find us where you get your podcasts on Spotify, Apple Music, and YouTube. Follow us on social media and give us a like. You can find us at That Vampire Pod on Twitter and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you guys. And remember, stay bloodthirsty. Catch our next episode on Lambert Hillier's Dracula's Daughter.